Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Across the Pond. This one is the first week of March. Barry, we're already in March. What do you have to say about that? It's absolutely crazy. How can we be in March already? I feel like the year just started yesterday. <laughs> it's insane. Who knows? But let's get into our episode. Well, hopefully the first two months of the year have treated you well. Um, we certainly, yeah, quite surprised at the, the astonishing speed that this is taking place. Uh, Barry, you had a good weekend, uh, I believe, spent some time in all that Kimberly has to offer. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I went down to Kimberley to visit my sister and spent some time with my family. And uh, I realized, Chad, that I really do enjoy living in big cities. I really struggle in these small towns where there's so little to do. So we did everything that Kimberly has to offer in like two and a half days, and I still found time to be bored. So, yeah, big cities are the one for me, I think. <laughs> Insane. Yeah, Barry was saying how he managed to actually tick off every single item on the list on TripAdvisor. Um, I was actually just saying, I don't know how long that would take in London. Uh, you'd probably need a couple of years for that. Uh, nevertheless, let's get to the week that was. The week that was. So this past week, uh, been a fairly uh, busy one in some aspects, but not so busy in others. Um, but we have finally now seen closure to a very contentious movement, something we've spoken about before, Harvey Weinstein and the uh, sexual assaults charges. Um, so he's been convicted uh, for rape and sexual assault. Um, the sentencing of this is actually due to take place on the 11th of March. We'll still, certainly still see that coming up. Um, but uh, this is going to be, uh, from some commentators, expected to be in the region of 5 to 29 years. Yeah, without a doubt. And this is kind of the premier case that kind of launched the Me Too movement across the world. So it's really, really a big deal for for uh, females standing up for themselves and kind of fighting against sexual harassment. Uh, Harvey Weinstein is a big name uh, movie producer in LA and in the States. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of drama behind his career now. And he's kind of been really dragged through the mud as, as it goes as that first example of someone who's finally found guilty for his charges. So uh, interesting to see what's going to happen with him. Absolutely. I mean, I, I heard a little bit about, um, you know, how this was actually supposed to happen, practically speaking, and I believe he was supposed to go straight to jail. Um, but, you know, like we've seen in, in all of these kinds of cases and, and all of kind of other cases, the medical realm becomes quite a nice excuse for, uh, for someone pending being sent to jail. Um, interesting for this one to be used now. Yeah, definitely. And so uh, apparently what happened was as the sentence was announced, or, the, or the, rather the verdict was announced, uh, he was basically completely paralyzed and didn't want to say anything and was completely shocked and uh, was taken to hospital because of high blood pressure and complaining of chest pains. So obviously it, it, looks, it looks a bit dodgy sometimes because, as you say, he was supposed to go straight to jail and await his sentencing on the 11th of March. Um, but apparently his defense has come out and said that he's just fine. He went for some, some checks to make sure everything's okay. Um, but, he's, but he's fine and, and in decent health, so he will face sentencing on the 11th. Um, and so we have to wait and see what happens there. I think the sentencing like, between 5 and 29 years is a huge range, so we have to wait and yeah. see where on that range he's going to sit. Um, but I think for the, for the sixth woman who, who kind of testified and kind of got up there and, and, and made their case, I think it's justice for them and uh, really exciting for what this is going to set the precedent for for sexual harassment in the future. Absolutely. I mean, I think for far too long, it's kind of not been seen on the same level as, as other crimes. And, and it is just that. So good to see some closure coming to that one. And hopefully those six ladies, um, you know, get some uh, consolation out of out of that um, verdict. Moving on to the next one, uh, the coronavirus, obviously, is still taking us way through the globe. 
Um, I wanted to chat about specifically the UK effects of it today. And um, yeah, it's been announced that there are currently now 40 cases throughout the UK. That number has grown very quickly um, from a, a very small number. I mean, it still is small compared to the rest of the globe. Um, but just in saying how, you know, Italy kind of gets this massive infection in Europe. And now all of a sudden, um, it's actually starting to pick up in the UK as well. Um, we've seen a, a kind of emergency calling of the uh, COBRA meeting uh, where the PM, uh, Boris Johnson, has chaired that this afternoon as we record this episode um, and really just trying to put into place a plan um, for when this does escalate um, because he's pretty much come out um, and saying that, you know, it is an eventuality. We need to expect this um, and need to start putting plans in place. Um, anything happening in South Africa or is it just to, to worry about on this side of the pond? No, so definitely there are concerns here and, there, and there's lots of rumors going around as to when the first African case is going to be diagnosed. What I do know so far is that um, Cyril Ramposa has gone to Wuhan and has um, brought back all the South Africans who were living across there. So I think it was about oh, 300 wow. people that were brought back. And uh, obviously it's a bit terrifying to bring those people back into South Africa because you worry you bring the virus with them. Sure. And so they are in quarantine in a, in, a, in a program in the Free State, which I was reading this morning has cost our taxpayers 80 million rand to put up that quarantine system and kind of get them in that system. And I think they're going to be there for 30 to 40 days before they are able to go back to their families and go back to back to their homes. Um, wow. So that's the big move from South Africa. We still haven't seen any cases on, on this side, um, but I think it's inevitable. I, I, I think everyone around the world, all the major governments are, are talking about plans and talking about how they're going to work with this. The U.S. is expected to announce some cases in the next kind of couple of weeks. Apparently, there are lots of rumors of, of cases that are in the process of being tested across the U.S. Um, I also watched an interesting video from the Prime Minister of Singapore and talking about how Singapore tried to deal with it. So I think across the globe, this thing is this thing is spread. I don't think we've, we've managed to keep it in China with, without a shadow of a doubt. And so everyone is going to have to face this, this struggle. And it's how well our systems are prepared and how well our medical systems can, can take us. And also, from a citizen perspective, how much we can keep that contained when you are sick or when you are potentially around people who could be sick. Absolutely. Um, I didn't hear about this. So are you saying that President Cyril Ramaphosa actually went to Wuhan himself um, to sort of escort all of these people back? I don't think he went personally. I think he <laughs> right. sent a plane, um, and, and <laughs> hopefully not a South African Airways plane, but some, some sort of plane across to Wuhan. Right. And, uh, and I think it's expatriated, <laughs> I think it's the term, uh, to bring everyone back home. Um, right. So I think, I think it, it's a very important statement for South Africa to show that we are protecting our citizens overseas and, and our South Africans overseas. Um, but obviously Twitter ran away with it, so I was enjoying all the memes on Twitter, even though it's quite a serious subject. Yeah. The memes on Twitter about bringing the coronavirus back were, were, were quite amusing. So we have to wait and see what the quarantine, what quarantine system works or not, yep. um, but even even if it's not from those people, I, I I think it's inevitable the virus will get you, and it might be here already. And it's just a matter of how quickly can we test, how quickly can we diagnose, and then how do we act. Absolutely. I mean, at least on this side, uh, some of the measures that are being spoken about are potentially calling back recently required doctors and asking them to return to the NHS, um, which is an interesting one, um, but obviously a, a, fair, a fair response. Um, I also have seen an increase in the campaign just to increase your general sanitation. So uh, it's literally all over mainstream media now um, in the UK to wash your hands. Uh, some people even saying you should sing happy birthday in your head um, to make sure that you wash them for the correct period of time. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose, uh, like we've been chatting about for a while, it's just been a matter of getting, getting that message out there and, and really just getting the uh, education on the up, I suppose. 
Yeah, and speaking about those doctors coming back, I think that's one of the major concerns is that even if this is not as deadly as previous viruses, if it really spreads very quickly, it could put a huge pressure on the medical system as a whole. And so what if you have all of a sudden a huge increase in patients who need to be able to see doctors or need to be able to go into hospitals or go and get medicine or whatnot, and those, those, that scale isn't available because they're at saturation points. And so the more doctors they have on, on staff, the better, and that gives them a better chance of handling what is going to come. Yeah, I mean, talking about the mortality rate of this virus, I actually saw a bit of an article where they tried to do a bit of a calculation. Um, and so they were kind of explaining the, the difficulty of doing such a calculation and really said that it's a PhD level type calculation because of the fact that, you know, in terms of the amount of information that's actually out there and in terms of the people who have not yet been diagnosed, um, that's really a tricky one. But uh, from that uh, calculation, they put out an estimate of about 1% uh, mortality risk, which is, uh, you know, fairly low, I suppose, but uh, still concerning nevertheless. I did see this week um, that the Pope has apparently put off four days' worth of consecutive public engagements. People have seen him coughing and uh, are really worried um, if the Pope maybe has the coronavirus. I, yeah, again, it's it's the media running away with things, right? So the Pope was seen coughing and spluttering during the Ash Wednesday service, which is like the biggest service of the, of the Catholic year almost. And uh, so, as you say, he's been he's been seen. He's kind of cancelled all his public appearances. But I don't think this is too untoward. I think we've seen a lot of conferences and a lot of public personalities cancelling events where they are um, going to see lots of people at once. And lots of like the Louvre closed this week to try and stop the the spread right. throughout those kind of public areas. And so. I, I understand them wanting to say the Pope has got coronavirus and, and get clicks off that. Um, but I think it's important to realize we don't actually know what we're talking about right now. And there's a yeah. lot of speculation and, and a lot of fear mongering going on by the, by the press. And that's, and that's why I think this Pope story is interesting is that what happens when this panic sets in and people start going and buying their tin foods and locking themselves in their houses, not going to work anymore and like telling all their friends to stop. And every time there's a cough, everyone freaks out. This kind of panic that can spread very, very quickly throughout the world is, is dangerous and it's own way because it forces humans to do weird things and to go beyond rational thoughts so i think it's important for us to take these news stories with a pinch of salt and uh, yeah. do our best to corroborate stories where we see them so that we're not just running away with one newspaper's idea of what happened but looking at as much like reliable and resourceful data that we can Absolutely. Um, let's certainly see how that one progresses. Moving on to the next one. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I thought it would be strange that uh, President Cyril Poza would be sitting in Wuhan is obviously last week was the South African budget speech. Um, Finance Minister Tito Mbueni delivering his speech for 2020. And I think the uh, expectation and, and really just the reaction to that speech has been uh, quite mixed from depending on who you speak to. Um, basically, there's a budget deficit of 7% percent of GDP. Um, inflation has been set uh, as around four and a half percent in terms of expectation for for the next year. Um, the interesting one here is that essentially a shift in focus. So in previous years, obviously, we've seen uh, the focus being put on increasing the, the, the tax base, really, and increasing the, the budget with which uh, the government can spend. And this year, what we've really seen is more of a focus on reshuffling priorities and really just looking at the expenditure. Um, quite a bit of positive news here for the individual, um, where if you actually look at the inflation that's been built into some of the tax thresholds, um, there's some really good tax benefits for individuals, um, potentially quite a few number of reasons for this. Um, but, you know, being one of those individuals, Barry, I mean, how does it feel to have a little bit of relief from the government at this stage? 
Yeah, so it feels good from my side, but I'm very surprised because I was expecting tax increases based on the fact, like you say, we've got a budget deficit, we've got a serious debt problem we're trying to deal with, our growth forecasts are very, very low, if non-existent. And so in a non-election year, I would expect taxes to go up. I could understand if it was an election year and the ANC were trying to keep votes, but in this non-election year, I would have thought taxes would go up. And uh, so it's interesting to me that that's happened. I think that it shows how many constraints and how many people are pulling in different directions on this budget speech. So you've got the investors who want more growth from South Africa. You want the citizens who want to bring down the debt and want lower taxes. You want the actual people on the street who don't want the VAT to go up. You want, you, you want all these various constraints on, on the budget speech, and we don't have enough money to kind of reach them all, right? And so it's this delicate balancing act to try and figure out what is the best step for the country. I think the important thing here is that all of these measures are put in place to try and stave off the, the, the Moody's downgrade, which sure. would be really detrimental to the African economy. And so I think in the back of their mind, all of these, these stats and all of these kind of forecasts are with a view to try and stave off that downgrade and buy us a little bit more time to right the ship. Absolutely. I mean, you know, they kind of want to try and, I suppose, get, get things going, really. And, and, and this is actually a fiscal measure that I think for, for a while we've, we've been re relying on interest rates um, a bit too much. And, and so maybe this could get a little bit of activity uh, going in terms of the individual space. Um, you know, certainly, I think as well, the, the levels of compliance, um, of tax compliance in South Africa um, is, is certainly uh, concerning, I'd say. Um, I think a lot of people look at what they get for their tax money and, uh, and you know, ultimately make that decision, um, which which is illegal, um, but but I think it's certainly happening. If you look at the uh, if you look at the stats, um, and, and potentially that could be one of the reasons why they decided to to not factor in these increases. I think one of the other potential reasons, and we've chatted about this in various forms in the podcast as well, is that the overseas world is becoming a little bit more and more appealing to South Africans who are, are looking to move abroad, um, and certainly increasing tax rates, one of the uh, incentives or, or not, uh, as the case is. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and it's that trade-off between the, the, the increase in tax rate versus, as you say, the services you get for your taxes. So it's not necessarily about the percentage of, of tax you're paying because sure. you can go to a Scandinavian country and pay like 70% tax, but all your public services are world-class and you can live a really, really good life. So it's that trade-off between... Is the, are you getting value for your money? Are your taxes sure. actually being utilized effectively? And unfortunately, because of the history of South Africa and kind of the way the economy is structured, the taxes are paid by the top percentage of the country, and yeah. the vast majority don't pay any tax at all because they're not at that wealth bracket yet. And so like you say, it's hard to keep increasing taxes because what you do is you encourage more and more of your top individuals, your young, talented people, the people with money, to leave the country and take their wealth with them. And so I'm sure that's a factor as well. And it's such a del delicate balancing act. I, I certainly wouldn't want that job. Absolutely. Well, let's see how that uh, budget actually pans out as the year progresses. Um, you know, hopefully that Moody's downgrade is avoided um, and uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on that. Um, essentially, uh, it was anticipated to be uh, around March. Uh, so we'll certainly find out this month, hopefully on that front. Uh, moving on to the next one, uh, we've been talking about climate change quite a lot and uh, you know various people playing various parts in it um, and so this past week we've seen the CEO of BlackRock Larry Fink um, basically put out a letter on uh, climate change. Barry you had a little look what did you find? Yeah so this is fascinating and actually a really exciting letter to read because BlackRock is I would say probably the biggest asset manager in the world. They've got billions of dollars under management and they have their tentacles and everything around the world. So they're a really influential player in the global financial landscape. 
And to see something like this from a big, big asset manager is really important to see because this is the kind of pressure that we're asking from, from corporations and from public-private partnerships to put pressure on governments and, and put pressure on basically society to change the way they do business and change the way to be more sustainable and kind of take climate change pretty seriously. And so if you, re if you read through the letter, here's some of the major points that I, that I picked out, Chad. Yeah. The first point that they made, and that's kind of the, the basis for this letter, is that climate risk they see as investment risk. So it's not just something on the sidelines. It's not like a third thing to think about. It's not the, th the third bottom line. It is the important piece that climate yeah. risk equals investment risk. And so what they see going forward is they're going to have to make significant reallocations of capital as a result of these climate change issues. So obviously, they're in the business of managing risk. They, On the behalf of their clients, they want to manage that risk and make sure that there's long-term returns above inflation for whoever invests in them. And so bringing climate change as a potential investment risk is a big change in philosophy, which is good to see. Yeah. So the second one is that speaking about this change in philosophy, um, they made it very, very clear they're going to be placing sustainability at the core of every investment decision. So for new investment allocations going forward, they want sustainability to be at the forefront of their mind as they make those, those decisions. And that means some quite radical solutions because what they mentioned was things like exiting investments that have climate risk inherent in them. So for example, coal companies or companies that rely on fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. really punishing those companies that are not using renewable, renewable energy or who are yeah. really contributing to increased uh, climate change issues. And by exiting those investments as this big an investor, you kind of cause a ripple effect because there's so many smaller asset managers who are looking at BlackRock and looking at how they are dealing with things, and you wonder what that impact is going to be on those companies that aren't sustainable. So this is the kind of capitalistic pressure that we need on these companies to force this change. And if this becomes a real part of their philosophy and not just lip service, I think it's going to have a huge impact on how businesses look at themselves going forward. Absolutely. I mean, like you've said, uh, you know, through the past couple of years, we've seen this triple bottom line uh, topic. And, and it's interesting uh, to see a company actually put this at the forefront. Um, like you said, really, really important. Um, for me, quite a surprise that, uh, like you said, they, they're actually planning to exit some of these investments. Surely at some point, some of these projects will just be rendered uh, redundant um, without adequate funding being available. Um, because, I mean, certainly as this starts, um, it, it'll become a bit of a reputation game as well, I'm sure. For, for anyone who does actually take that risk on and who does actually fund those projects. Yeah, exactly. And what I was surprised by, just from a business perspective, is why would they announce this before they've exited those investments? Because yeah. this is going to push the price down immediately once they make this kind of announcement. So I found it surprising that they didn't do this first, exit first, and then announce why they exited. Um, but anyway, I, I think I think it's a good thing um, for, the, for, for the world and for the, for, for the globe. We need to understand that our actions have implications and consequences. And when investors are pulling out of those kind of companies, it sends that deliberate signal to say, you have to to reshape your business otherwise you're gonna you're gonna fall behind and you're gonna lose yeah. out and uh, that's the only way we're gonna force change in society otherwise it carries on carries on because it keeps making money yeah, really interesting, as you said, the timing of that. Um, it would be quite interesting to see what other investments they have in, in the renewable energy space. And, and potentially they're, they're kind of hedging their own um, strategy um, in, in their own side and, and you know, really kind of placing, placing that value over there. Um, potentially a statement like this will see those types of assets um, increase in value um, in a you know, potentially offsetting type way. So, yeah, really interesting to see. Definitely. I think the whole world is going to be pouring over those BlackRock uh, investment decks and their fundamentals of their businesses to try and figure out what is the next step for, for BlackRock and what impact that's going to have on the financial system as a whole. 
The third piece, Chad, was what I found quite interesting is that they announced they're going to join with France, Germany, and various global foundations to form what's called the Climate Finance Partnership, which is basically a public-private effort to improve financing structures for infrastructure investments in new renewable energy. Right, so one of the biggest one of the biggest struggles with the transition to renewable energy is that often it needs huge investment up front in order to gather the economic benefits on uh, over the long term, right? So, sure. if you, so if you think about your own house, if you want to put in solar panels, it's very, very expensive up front, and then you hope to save money over the long term because then your electricity is cheaper for the next 10 to 20 years. But yeah. that initial capital investment is very, very tough to get, especially if you don't have that kind of money to, to front right up front. Yep. And so that economic model doesn't always work for everybody on an individual basis. Now, if you scale that up to like governments and to companies and to countries, the exact same problem arises, is that we need huge capital investments up front in order to unlock the power of renewable energy over the long term. And so what this public-private partnership is going to try and do is try and come up with new financing structures that really help in this kind of problem and help like allay that load across the, the, the lifetime of the investments and not just in the first year or two when the actual infrastructure needs to be built. And so I think it's quite cool to see that they actually are thinking about business model structuring as well and not just pure financial investment, but how do you change the economy in a way that allows for more of these renewable energy infrastructure plays to happen? Absolutely fascinating and uh, really nice to see this happening. And for me, really interesting that a, a company, uh, for all intents and purposes, is, is joining the efforts of countries. I mean, like you said, BlackRock is such a giant. And if you kind of just look at the, the net assets type of thing, it, it's comparable to uh, a large number of small countries. Um, and so it is really good to see uh, a company like this um, basically shifting its weight around um, and you know, hopefully bringing out dialogue to actually start to shift this needle that is climate change. Yeah, definitely. Let's hope, let's hope it does that. And then the last piece from, from this letter, which is kind of the weakest one in my opinion, was they announced that there's going to be improved disclosure for shareholders. So much more transparency surrounding sustainability and kind of measuring those impacts. And I think we've seen this over the last 10 years as one of the key advancements or the key changes in accounting policies and in accounting in general. Is how do you measure this climate impact? How do you measure sustainability? Sure. And then report that to shareholders so that they can actually make business decisions based on that information. And so I think it's great that they're asking for more transparency. I think it's very important that we are as transparent as possible and that we are reporting on these things. But in my, in my experience, having seen sustainability reports in the past, they're often very wishy-washy. They're often all over the place. It's very hard to understand what data is valuable and what isn't and uh, who is verifying this data on behalf of those companies. So when auditors go in and try and audit these sustainability figures, it's a lot more difficult to audit them than pure financial stuff where you can see the ins and the outs, right? And so it's a, it's a measure of, I think it's a step in the right direction, but there's a lot of like uh, scrutiny and rigor that needs to be in place in order for us to actually trust these sustainability reports. Yeah, like you said, uh, hopefully this doesn't just increase all of the boilerplate disclosure that just bloats financial statements and just bloats annual reports of uh, various companies. We almost need to get to the point where we have some sort of standard um, on the uh, sustainability front, um, you know, where you can kind of see at a glance um, what it is that the company is doing and, and the audit of that then being a lot easier because you're, you're kind of testing for specific benchmarks, specific um, bands and that type of thing. So we'll, we'll certainly have to see uh, what that disclosure looks like that they're talking about. Um, but yeah, let's hope it, it, it isn't just bloating these reports as some of the other stuff is. Um, moving on to the next one. Now we've seen uh, Trump basically um, taking a bit of a turn. So uh, there's essentially the first 
first U.S.-Afghan peace deal um, after 18 years of war. Um, for me, this looks like a massive positive. Um, obviously, there's been quite a bit of negotiation uh, going back and forth. Um, you know, there's obviously side effects of this. Um, certain prisons released at, at certain places, um, but uh, I certainly think this is uh, some progress. But definitely, and and it's a big it's a big win for Trump because this is one of the things that Trump announced right at the beginning of his of his reign as president that this is one of the things he wanted to accomplish was to bring those troops out of Afghanistan, and so as you say they've been working for months and months and months on this negotiation. It's obviously a very very tender situation, and there's lots of pros and cons and lots of like different things to think about when you kind of sign one of these deals. Um, but basically, this agreement has has been signed, and it paves the way for the U.S. troops to leave Afghanistan over the next 14 months. So so as far as I understand, there's about 14,000 U.S. troops sure. and 19,000 troops from all the allies who are currently in Afghanistan. Yep. And over the next 14 months, they're going to be pulled out as systematically and as stably as possible um, with a view that in 14 months' time, the U.S. will have no presence in Afghanistan militarily-wise. And uh, that, that is quite a, quite a statement from, from, the, from, as you say, from the war that started 18 years ago till today. Basically, it's a, a monumental moment for that. Um, yeah, a definitely. lot of people thought this war should never have been done in the first place, right? And so it's controversial in, in, in all aspects. And uh, for Trump, I think it just strengthens his bid to win re-election for the U.S. because it's a big thing that he promised and he's actually delivered. Yeah, it's actually been quite an interesting one for me, um, you know, looking at Trump and looking at his character and personality um, and actually see him, uh, you know, go and seek out these peace efforts. I mean, if we look at, um, you know, the talks that he's had with North Korea as well, um, you know, really making a progress on, on some issues that uh, we potentially wouldn't have attributed with just looking at his character alone. Definitely, and, and that's that's one of the major pillars that he built his election campaign on was undoing the supposed mistakes of previous presidents. So undoing the mistakes of President Bush and President Obama, who, according to him and according to many of his supporters, went into these wars unnecessarily and caused the deaths and and destruction of so much, so many U U.S. troops, so many Afghan troops, and the destruction of properties and civilians and all that good stuff. And so I think it's a it's a key part of why he was elected president. I think that a lot of Americans are, are tired of this kind of war yeah. aspects of America where they go and they invade various countries to try and install democracies and often end up breaking more eggs than they create. Sure. Um, but I think that it's it's a tremendous moment for, for peace. We can only hope that it's the last. We can only hope that nothing else comes from this. I think that the Middle East situation is still on tender hooks and there's still a lot of drama there and it's definitely not over by any stage. Sure. But it's a, it's a good step in the right direction to, to get those troops out and see if Afghanistan can hold a stable kind of country without U.S. intervention. Well, I know a friend who actually fought in uh, in Afghanistan, and I, I certainly, uh, you know, think it's it's good progress um, to to get as many wars um, put out as possible. Moving on to the next one, we spoke last week uh, about the the boxing match, the the, the massive match against um, Wilder and uh, Tyson Fury, and um, there has been a confirmation of a third rematch. Are you happy to hear of this one, Barry? I'm very happy, and I can't believe it's going to be this soon. So the, the date they've kind of announced as a tentative date is July 18th, trying to get right. in before the Olympics in Tokyo. And so that's very, very soon. So so normally they would take a long time to train for this kind of fight, but taking a fight that early is is exciting for me because I'm really I'm really keen to see that, that rematch. And uh, so I'm looking forward to round number three. And Chad, I must say, I have a confession that I made a big mistake last week. <laughs> uh, so we, we chatted about the, 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 the Fury Wilder fight, and we chatted about the, 
fight number two, which which Fury won, and kind of set the tone for this rematch. And in that podcast, I said that in the first match, Deontay Wilder won that first match. And I was actually incorrect, and I realized when I was watching the episode back that I just made a complete mistake. They actually <laughs> drew that first match in a very, very controversial draw. So right. a 12-round match that kind of went right to the wire, and the judges were, were split decision, and so there was no result in that first fight. Um, and right. so that kind of set the tone for the second and the third fight. So just to correct that for, for the listeners, thank you for the guys who <laughs> let me know that I made a mistake there. <laughs> but I'm very excited for round number three. I think that there are two giants of, of boxing. They are incredible physical specimens. And uh, you know there's going to be a, a huge spectacle on, for that third fight, and I can't wait. Well, I mean, let's just see if uh, Wilder comes back. Then uh, it kind of begs the question of who the ultimate champion is if you've got um, an effective draw yet again. Um, so we'll have to see what happens there. Um, moving on to other sporting events, uh, I've heard some amazing news from the SA side. Uh, Barry, talk us through the Blitzbocker and their win this past weekend. Yeah, so this weekend was uh, Rugby Sevens again, which is always a very, very exciting uh, kind of piece of sport. And this this week's tournament, or this weekend's tournament, was in Los Angeles in the U.S., uh, so a really, really cool, really cool tournament. There was a lot of stars in the audience. We saw David Hasselhoff in the seats. We saw a bunch of right. actresses and actors uh, watching. So that was really cool to see. Cool. And the Blitzwalker were incredible. They had a kind of an awkward group stage where they made a few mistakes and they, they drew with Ireland 1919 in one of the group stages, uh, but managed to squeeze their way through the quarterfinals. And they made their way through, I think it was the US and then New Zealand in the semis and then played Fiji in the final. And the final was one of the most exciting sevens rugby games you could ever imagine, right? So the Blitzbocker started off very, very badly, and Fiji were 19-0 up at halftime, which in sevens is a huge, huge amount of points because you're only playing seven minutes a half, so it's very hard to yeah. come back. With three minutes to go in the second half, the Boca were down 24-12, so two scores down, right? They somehow managed to score, and with 20 seconds to go, they were 24-17 down. So with wow. 20 seconds to go, you basically got no chance because you've got to kick yep. off to the other side, and then they can just run down the clock. The Blitzbocker managed to kick the ball off and recover that ball and went and scored the try on the Hooter to make it 24-24. Took wow. us to a sudden-death playoff, and we scored the, the try in the sudden-death to win the Los Angeles Sevens last weekend. So it was an absolutely amazing game of rugby. It was like bone gripping right to the end <laughs> and as a South African it made me incredibly excited I was shouting at my TV um, and really really good to see them winning that tournament and it really kind of cements their place at the top of the the standings for this this year's uh, Rugby Sevens and so hopefully they can keep that momentum going and really show that they have the potential to go and win this again What's also worth mentioning, Chad, is that a lot of our top players aren't even there in the, at, the, at the moment because they're all oh, playing wow. Super Rugby for 15-man for rugby. Right. So we actually were bleeding a lot of youngsters. So it was really cool to see youngsters who are 19, 20, 21 years old getting their chance on the big stage and pulling off these wins with serious BMT. Absolutely amazing. That sounds like a game to watch. I'll certainly try and catch the highlights. Um, th I mean, that kind of sounds like New Zealand type style um, where we see in the last few minutes, in the dying minutes of the game, um, some amazing breakthrough and, and, and ultimate victory. Um, that, that certainly sounds incredible. Um, I know that the Sevens is coming to London in May. Um, so I'm going to actually try and uh, try and go through and, and see it. I've actually never been to a Sevens tournament. Um, we actually get a pass for both days. It, it certainly sounds like fun um, and, and really just sounds like a, a that I think a lot more people need to start watching and, and get into. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's one of those sports where the spectators have such a jaw in the stands, right? So what happens in these sevens tournaments is that everyone dresses up. So you dress up in fancy yeah. dress with all your friends and you go and enjoy a day of rugby arts and you get to see some amazing like physical feats. These guys are seriously incredible. Like they really are worth supporting because they are incredibly yeah. fast and incredibly strong. And so you've got these giant six-foot guys who are running faster than you could ever imagine um, and pulling off amazing passes and, and tries. It's really is an exciting form of rugby, and it's really growing. I think the fact that it's being included in the Olympics going forward is really exciting yeah. for the sports. And so as the Blitzbok guy, I think, Chad, you have to go and support them in London. Absolutely. Well, we'll certainly go and check that out. Moving on to our next insert. Stuff I found interesting. So Barry mentioned a little something about getting dressed up and uh, this past weekend I was going for a little run, uh, run along the river and went past the uh, Olympia, Kensington Olympia uh, Expo Center um, to see a whole bunch of people dressed up in, um, you know, sort of characters, outfits. Um, I was quite scared when I saw this big Batman who was insanely, insanely accurate and, and, you know, looked insanely real. He had a full-on proper rubber suit. Uh, I could swear it was Ben Affleck uh, inside that suit, um, you know, with the <laughs> firm expression on the face. Um, you know, I kind of had to had to step aside when I was running, um, but really interesting for me. So this was Comic Con, um, and this was the London iteration. I actually didn't know that it took place here. And really just interesting for me um, how much this means to people and how much effort some of these guys actually put into um, some of these outfits. Would you like to see something like that hitting the shores of that side? So it actually has, Chad. So we had Comic-Con right. Africa at end of last year, which was a similar kind of concept, and they brought some right. of the big stars across. Kind of the big name that came across was Jason Momoa, who plays Aquaman. And okay. so all of the, the all of the guys this side who really love that world were, were blown away by that. And so I didn't go personally, but I had a lot of some friends who did. And like you say, it's such an amazing opportunity to kind of gather together with people who love what you love. And uh, the dressing up and the, 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 I think I call it cosplay, I think that's the word, is absolutely amazing. Like the amount of yeah. effort that they go through and the costumes and planning it all out and and, and embodying their favorite characters is, is incredible. And so like you say, Che, when you see these guys in real life, you're like, oh, wow, that's actually <laughs> Spider-Man or that's actually the Hulk or that's actually Batman. Yep. Um, and so Comic-Con has really grown from in leaps and bounds. And I think we've seen it because of the success of Marvel and DC Comics, um, both in the movie space and in the comics and merchandising space as well. And so it, they've, they've grown these massive audiences all around the world. And so I think Comic-Con is going to be in every country around the world because there are, there are fans everywhere. And uh, the kind of environments and atmosphere and everyone just enjoying themselves, it's a really, really wholesome and enjoyable conference for people to go to if you're into that kind of thing. Absolutely. I, I certainly will have to check it out next time it, uh, it comes around this side. Don't think I'll be getting dressed up, but we'll certainly go and go and look at everyone else. Um, I mean, I, I think it's hard to leave out the, the boom that is esports and, and all of those characters as well that I think are also starting to become incorporated into these types of events. Um, I mean, esports on the up, I believe, filling arenas at the moment as well. And uh, a lot of people saying that one day we might actually you know, see this become mainstream. Definitely. And I would argue it's already become mainstream in some countries, right? So if you look at Korea, where you say those arenas, you have some of those tournaments in Korea where they get 60,000 people into a football sure. stadium to watch guys play esports. And so I would argue it's already mainstream, just maybe not in the countries that we live in at the moment. Sure. But I think it's inevitable it's going to get there one day because of the, the rapid growth and the, the amount of people who are playing these online games. And I think one of the key aspects as well is that culture is slowly, is slowly shifting, right? So there used to be a huge stigma around these kinds of things, 
around comic Definitely. books, around computer games, around those sorts of those sorts of aspects of, of culture. And I think culture is changing slowly to accept those. And I think we're going to see more and more of it going forward. I think esports is a huge industry to watch. I think it's going to be gigantic as it continues to grow. And with the kind of the you've, you've seen Twitch take off as a streaming platform, you've seen Definitely. all sorts of gamers become mainstream celebrities, guys like Ninja and whatnot who've really built huge brands and careers off the back of playing Fortnite in front of millions of people online. I think that this kind of trend is going to continue, and that's why comics and that's why these sorts of pieces of culture are in a great position to grow going forward. So I've not actually tuned into a streaming service. I'm not sure if you have, Barry, but um, I mean, it really is interesting that there are millions of millions of people around the world who are keen to tune in for hours on end uh, to somebody playing a game and uh, obviously throwing in a little bit of commentary throughout the way. Um, what do you think has spurred on this revolution? Do you think people are, are trying to learn tricks from, from uh, you know, better gamers out there? Um, or do you think this is just entertainment at its core? Yeah, so I think it's entertainment, right? I think that a lot of these guys have kind of built... The guys who've got really big brands and have these people watching them on a regular basis often not the best gamers in the world ability-wise, right. but they're the, they're the most engaging personalities, right? So the reason that Ninja is the number one in the world is because his personality is so big and he's kind of gained this audience of followers in the same way that a YouTuber has or the same way that a social media star has. And so I think when you think about it like that, it's just another form of a YouTuber. It's just a different type of entertainment. So instead of watching sure. a vlog or instead of watching a, a game show or whatever the story is, you're watching this person play a game that you love. And so I don't think these guys are sitting to watch to watch get and get tips and whatnot. I think they're going there because there's a community of like-minded individuals. They go there because of that creator, because they like what he or she says or they kind of enjoy their entertainment. And uh, it's becoming absolutely huge. I mean, Twitch is a, is a monster. And uh, if, you're not, uh, if you're not aware of it, you haven't gone on it before, you don't really understand the scale that these platforms are at. Um, there are yeah. millions and millions of people on these platforms all the time. And so this kind of trend is going to continue. And so if you're looking for investment opportunities, I think esports is, a, is an interesting way to think about it. Absolutely. There's, there's no denying that. I mean, we saw uh, one of the first mainstream sponsors, I believe, to be Nike um, in the past couple of months. Um, and yeah, it's just really interesting to see how much emphasis is being placed on all that is esports. I mean, obviously, there's there's loads of different games that fall under this remit. And uh, I mean, interestingly as well, um, a question that I certainly have is for these game manufacturers, um, are any extra kind of royalties, um, is that something they, they, they'll start thinking about? I mean, if you think about it, you are broadcasting their IP, which has been developed for your own personal consumption, um, to you know people around the globe. You're arguably going to profit from some of that, um, those streams and some of those views that you get. Um, and so I really wonder whether they're going to start uh, emphasizing that. Do you think that could be a cool little business opportunity there, Barry? I... I see what you're saying, but I don't think they need to do that. I think that the fact that these guys are playing their games is the best free marketing they could ever get for their game, right? right. And so what, what I, uh, the way I think they think about it is that if a really, really popular person is playing this online to 500,000 people, they are getting free marketing for their game to those 500,000 people. And for those people who are watching, they are very likely to go and find that game and then start playing it and join that community. So I think these games are more than happy for these guys to stream. And it's very, very different to traditional, how we traditionally think about IP. We want to protect it to ourselves. We want to make yeah. sure we monetize every single piece of it. I think it's valuable to let these people play these games online, let them build these followings and build these communities because what you do is you build these raving fans who love your game, and that's how you make money going forward. These games have become businesses on their own, right? So in the past, you used to have gaming companies who used to build businesses with 10 or 12 games under their brand. 
these kind of games that have got to this sort of scale, so we're thinking of World of Warcraft or League of Legends or Fortnite, etc., they are giant, giant billion-dollar companies on their own. And so I think that these kind of streamers and the kind of the personalities that champion these games are their biggest advocates, and I don't think they want to charge them anything. I want them. To, I think they want them to play the game as much as possible. Definitely do brand deals and whatnot with them, sure. but to charge them royalties, I think would disincentivize them to play in the game, and rather let them be your free salesman, basically. Fair enough. Um, it'll certainly be interesting to see how this develops. Um, I mean, li like you said, kind of the, the, the stock exchange in terms of all of those listed um, shares of, of these game manufacturers are, are certainly a, a place to, to look at. I mean, I actually went for an interview at, uh, at King a while back. Um, that is the manufacturer of Candy Crush. And uh, I mean, just fascinating for me how that app has still kept going for so long, um, how they, they've got these massive headquarters in London. And essentially, all the, way, the only way that they make their money is through in-app purchases, um, i.e. people who cannot get to a level quick enough and, and really just want to buy extra credits. Um, for me, it's insane to think that, you know, that's a feasible business model, but, but clearly there is enough demand out there. It's so funny you say that because in Kimberley this weekend, I, I was walking past in a shopping center and I saw two people sitting on a bench playing Candy Crush <laughs> and I couldn't believe it because I assumed Candy Crush had died 10 years ago, right? Yeah. But it's still going strong and it's so addictive that the, the kind of the power users, as you say, are so desperate to get to these next levels and they've been caught in this in this almost addictive type of game. Um, they're willing to pay money, and that's how they make these these millions and millions of dollars. And so it's an interesting change of the traditional business model where you're trying to hook someone. It's almost like the drug business model, right? You're trying to hook someone in the beginning with a, with a free yep. product and get them to play as much as possible. And then once they're hooked and they're so addicted, then you start putting on these in-game purchases to try and gain money from it. And so, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot here, and I think esports and gaming in, in general has a lot of way to go as we move into new platforms and we, we, we continue to get more people online on, on, on smartphones, essentially. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Yeah, absolutely agree there. So moving on to those two people on the bench in Kimberley. I know we spoke about all the TripAdvisor stuff, but that's uh, kind of some of the things you got up to in Kimberley. Barry, tell us more about this city. Yeah, so basically the reason that Kimberley exists as a city is because of a giant diamond mine, which is now affectionately called the Big Hole. And it really is a huge hole, right? So it's the biggest <laughs> hole in the world that was dug by men, not equipment. So there's no machinery or anything. People dug it with their hands and right. with shovels and, and ex explosives and stuff. And so it is a really a sight to behold, and it's the major tourist attraction in Kimberley. It's kind of the, the big thing you go and do when you're there. Excuse the pun. Um, and basically, this diamond mine um, is, is so big. Let me give you some stats to illustrate how big this hole is and what kind of impact it had. So... Over the course of the, the mine's history, or kind of the mine's lifetime, there were 14.5 million carats of diamond that were mined, which is a staggering amount of diamonds, and that's equivalent to about 2,722 kilograms worth of diamonds, right? Wow. So a huge amount of wealth coming out of a very, very small piece of land. And so while it's a big hole, it's still not big in the sense of like kilometers wide or anything. It's, it's one hole that had that much diamonds in it, which is crazy. And those diamonds were formed by a volcano that they, they think erupted about 9 million years ago that basically forced those diamonds up from the core of the earth into, into the sediment that's, where that's right. able to be mined. So a really, really strange occurrence that kind of created this frenzy in Kimberley. In order to get those 14.5 million carats of diamonds, they had to excavate 22.5 million tons of ground, so soil. Oh my gosh. And 
that is a staggering amount of soil. And basically, what they had to do was physically, with their hands, with shovels, with lots and lots of laborers, I think there were 40,000 people working on it at, at its peak. Wow. Taking that soil out of the ground, uh, often from way down in the hole, and getting it outside of the hole. And so when you drive around Kimberley, you see lots of these piles of dirt that are just left over from years and years and years ago of their having to get the soil somewhere else other than that hole. So a tremendous excavation effort there. The hole itself is about 250 meters deep. So from surface to the bottom of the hole is about 250 meters deep. And then there's also two kilometers of tunnels underneath that hole where they were looking for, wow. for, for other diamond deposits. So it is a ginormous kind of ex excavation and a huge amount of wealth came out of that. And so what was really interesting, Chad, was that uh, as I was going through the guided tour and I was learning about the history and whatnot, I didn't know any of this history, really. I kind of knew the big hole as a concept, sure. and I, I never really thought much about it. But hearing this history really made me think about what do we value, right? So why, why are these 14.5 million carats of diamonds so valuable? And why did they create this frenzy where people from all around the world were traveling to this random spot in South Africa to come and have their shot at trying to find some diamonds, right? Why would, yep. you, why would you get on a ship and travel for months from the US, from India, from China to come to South Africa because you've heard about this diamond mine? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's just a piece of stone, right? It's just a piece of carbon. And uh, th th there's very little to distinguish it between other semi-precious stones. Why did the diamond become so valuable? And for some reason, it, 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 become, it became like the, the symbol for love and the symbol for commitment in, in Western society. And uh, because of its scarcity and because it sparkles a little bit and because it was, was quite rare, it became this, this thing that if I commit to you, I want to prove that I value you and that I really yep. want to spend my life with you. Or I want to like show you my love. And in order to do so, I'm going to sacrifice a huge amounts of efforts or money to get this diamond for you and put it in your finger. And this kind of value value transfer is very bizarre because if you look at the cost of getting those diamonds to, to the surface, it's obviously significant, but it's nothing compared to the price of putting a tiny 0.5 carat diamond ring on, 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 <laughs> on someone's finger. Um, and so the value of this diamond doesn't come from the actual diamond itself. It comes from the stories we tell ourselves about these diamonds, right? So it comes from all those love stories we tell ourselves that this diamond represents my commitment to you, represents how much I value you. And so companies like De Beers and these big diamond mines made huge piles of wealth on the yeah. back of these stories we tell ourselves, which I thought was interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Um, we spoke about this Netflix uh, documentary series, and they had an episode on this. Um, and like you said, De Beers core to that journey and, and core to a, a really a key marketing um, campaign that they went about that, that just changed the face for what it, what it is that we call diamonds these days. Um, and like you say, it's, it's just a stone. Why do we place so much on it? Um, it it's a fascinating idea. And uh, in terms of value transfer for on the back of love, I mean, if we think of, uh, you know, in, in the South African community, uh, this idea of labola, um, where you have to uh, buy a certain number of cattle um, for your prospective uh, wife, is uh, I mean it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, why 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 did we pick cattle in, in that instance? Why did we pick uh, diamonds? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think certainly as far as diamonds is concerned, uh, De Beers and that marketing campaign uh, must be one of the most coveted ones in the world. Um, and uh, you know, they they really are, are still one of the big players uh, in the globe on that space. Definitely. And actually, their headquarters is right on the top of that big hole. So the tour guide actually pointed us to the building that their headquarters are still, even today, even though the hole is no longer being mined, the headquarters are still there. Because that, that, that big hole in Kimberley was the start of De Beers and was the start of this giant diamond corporation that now runs the world, basically runs the diamond world, especially. Yeah. 
And and what, what I find interesting about them is the way they control supply and demand to maintain the value of diamonds, right? Yep. So there's rumors about huge stockpiles of diamonds that are keeping keeping secret and keeping like wow. away from the markets yep. to try and keep the price at what at what it is. And so it's one of those things where marketing and storytelling creates value where there is no value, where there is no tangible value. And in the same way that money is just a story we tell ourselves, in the same way that a country is just a story we tell ourselves, the value of a diamond is exactly, exactly that same thing. And so why I wanted to bring it up, I wanted to, wanted to think about the stories we tell ourselves and, and what we actually value and why, right? So a lot of the conversations around Bitcoin are often saying, but, this, but it does, it's not anything, it's just code. It's just like a piece of numbers on a spreadsheet. Why does it have value? And the reason it has value is because we decide it has value. As a community or as a society, as a willing buyer and a willing seller, we decide that a Bitcoin is worth X amount. And in the same way, diamonds were one of the precursors to that. Same with gold, same with all of those metals. It was a way to translate value in a world where we needed like quantifiable things. Absolutely. I mean, certainly diamonds being one of the uh, most resilient um, of, of that source, you know, we, we normally see these market values go up and down and uh, we see typical, um, you know, bubbles and, and how they pop if we look at like the, you know, the tulips and how, how valuable tulips were at some stage, um, you know, just a flower. Um, it, it is really a, an interesting human experiment. And, and uh, I mean, I suppose just one of those that's intrinsic in uh, what it is that makes us up. What is there to aspire to if there isn't something uh, that you can have as a kind of symbol i suppose yeah definitely i think we underestimate the power of symbols especially in the kind of communities that we run in um, where symbols hold a lot of value and they really mean a lot to us because it's a it's a means of expressing things that we want to express but language maybe not can't get there or maybe we want some sort of commitment device to prove that we're serious about what we say. So words are cheap, but if you're going to like commit a lot of your, your wealth, a lot of your money to buy this diamond ring, you're trying to show that you really, really, really value this person and you're willing to sacrifice pieces of yourself in order to prove that to somebody. So it's interesting. Really is interesting. Let's move on to our next segment. Looking ahead. So looking ahead, we have kind of toned down the Brexit points, um, you know, right at the beginning of the podcast, this was a weekly feature, um, and now we kind of only check in as and when something of interest comes about, and essentially today, um, that is Monday, if you're listening to this podcast, um, is the first day of the formal negotiations between the EU and the UK um, about the future relationship uh, that you know, the two will have um, after the UK leaves the European Union. And uh, that's getting started in Brussels today. Barry, will you be keeping your eye out on that and how it pans out? I will be indeed. I think it has big implications for the future of UK-EU relations, obviously, but also the way that the UK interacts with the rest of the world. So this is going to set a precedent for various trade deals that the UK is going to have to, do, going to, have to go into with various other countries as they've left the EU now. So I think everyone's going to be watching what happens. I think it's going to be a long, drawn-out negotiation. I don't think it's going to happen soon, and it's going to take lots of back and forth across, across the aisle. Um, so I definitely will be watching it, and I think it's important to see how it's going to impact other countries who are thinking about leaving the EU, right? So we've heard about things like Scotland and Italy and various other countries who are thinking about leaving the EU. They're going to be watching this with BDI to make sure, cool, what does it look like if we try and leave and we try and negotiate with the EU? Um, so lots to watch out for. We don't have much information just yet because it's just starting, um, but I'll definitely be watching with, with bated breath. Yeah, I've certainly been uh, keeping an eye on the uh, on the newspapers and uh, quite a key theme has been 
been um, the potential for importing meat from the US. Um, now, if you're kind of not familiar about that, the kind of processing that they use with uh, chicken, for instance, um, is that they kind of wash it away with chlorine, um, and that would not meet the UK's standards. Um, so there's been quite a lot of anticipation for what might come, but like you said, uh, those details are, are yet to be revealed. Um, but it is quite interesting when you've got a country that has certain health and safety standards, um, and obviously, you know, the US is, is a, a nation that can't be ignored. Um, and uh, I mean, quite an interesting one, how this is going to fit in with, um, you know, the, the country's wishes and that of its people. Definitely. And this is kind of where the rubber hits the road for, for the UK Parliament, right? So they've, they've, they've gotten out of the EU, they've, they've delivered on their promise to the citizens, and now they've got to do their best politicking to make sure they get the best deals with all the various major players. Uh, so as you say, the US is a huge is a huge deal, and there's been a lot of talk about the, the Trump-Boris kind of relationship. So we have to wait and see what happens there. But uh, be, like the meat is obviously a big issue, but there's multiple industries that are affected Definitely, by various yeah. trade deals. And so there's lots of things to come. I think we'll both be watching it. And hopefully, if listeners will we keep uh, keep you updated with what's going on there, because um, Brussels is going to be a hotbed of debate and uh, lots of negotiation going forward. Absolutely, definitely. I mean, like you said, there's lots to come from these discussions, um, but but some for some reason, you know, meat is kind of at the forefront of of the papers at the moment, um, and certainly as well uh, as uh, you know, fishing and and who gets to use which shores, um, which is also quite an interesting one um, to see, you know, who the UK lets um, fish at, at various locations. So we'll we'll certainly keep an eye on that and see how it evolves. Um, that's the end of this segment for the week. Shall we move on, Barry? Let's do it. Develop and Grow. So this week on Develop and Grow, I am bringing a book that I recently finished. So I'm going to show it to our YouTube viewers. So if you're watching the video, hopefully that's in focus. It's a book called Tiny Habits by a, by a PhD by the name of BJ Fogg. And BJ Fogg works at Stanford University in the States, and he is a behavioral science researcher. So his whole job is looking at why humans do what we do and how do we change our habits or change our behaviors. And so we've spoken a lot about habit change on this podcast, Chad, about how do we like improve good habits, how do we cut out bad habits, and how do we try and improve our lives on a, on a day-to-day basis. And BJ Fogg is one of the leaders in that space. I've been reading his research for a while, and so I'm really excited that he finally wrote a book with all of his research in one place. So I can finally recommend it for anyone who's looking to improve their habits or improve some things about their life. Uh, the kind of the science in here and kind of the philosophy in here is, is amazing. So I'd highly recommend that book. What I thought I'd do is pull out one key aspect, which I think we haven't chatted about on the podcast that much, which is the idea of yeah. celebrating the small wins. I think, Chad, I think you're the same as me. Our, our kind of personalities are, we kind of forget about celebrating small wins because we're Definitely. both very ambitious people. We're both very driven. And I think if you're listening, yeah. to that, listening to this podcast, it's quite likely you are as well. And we have these huge dreams we're trying to accomplish. And what happens is if we get too hard on ourselves in pursuit of those dreams, we can start to feel nihilistic and start to feel down and depressed about those things because we're not achieving these crazy ideas that we think should happen tomorrow, right? And one of the key aspects to behavioral change that comes out of this book is the fact that momentum is the most important force in in any behavior change. So momentum is immensely powerful. And the idea is that you're never going to achieve those big wins unless you build the momentum of small wins on the way to that big win. Right, so we kind of see in life that that winners win more and losers lose more because basically the momentum gets in their heads and there's a psychological self-fulfilling prophecy if you get into one of those spirals. 
And so when he says celebrate the small wins in this book, he's meaning like very, very small wins. Like the book is called Tiny Habits. So celebrate the tiny wins. So he talks about things like if you're struggling to get out of bed in the morning and you keep snoozing that alarm and you push snooze, 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 and you're lying in bed for 45 minutes, every day that you get out of your bed at that first alarm, he tells you to punch your fist in the air and say, yes, come on, I did it. (laughs) And And really celebrate in that super silly way to yourself. Um, and the reason he says that is because just that silly little like celebration releases dopamine in your head that then yep. is allocated to that behavior. So you, it gives you a better chance of the next morning because um, your brain wants that dopamine hit again is to repeat that behavior. So that tiny win, even though it seems super ridiculous, and if your <laughs> partner's lying in bed next to you, they're going to think you're a madman. It's, it's really important because those are the wins that kind of build the progress for the day. And if you're able to celebrate those tiny, tiny, tiny wins, those tiny moments where you can stave off your addiction or stave off your, your temptation or you're able to eat that apple instead of that chocolate bar or you're able to go to the gym instead of sitting at home watching Netflix, every one of those small wins is an opportunity to congratulate yourself and to celebrate that win so that you build that momentum going forward. And so I think it's a really important point, both for mental health, to try and keep us on, on the right track and keep us positive Definitely. about our lives, and also, it's actually scientifically valuable because that dopamine hits from that celebration, once it's linked to that behavior, it makes it much easier to repeat that going forward. What do you think, Chad? I love this. I love the idea of pulling out the seemingly insignificant bits and actually celebrating them. Although I am wondering what my partner would do if I leaped out of bed <laughs> with my fist in the air, um, you know, celebrating getting out of bed. Um, but I, I mean, I can completely see the uh, the benefit to it. I mean, it's just one of those where I think even in in our sort of bigger pieces, our bigger goals and the, the bigger projects that we take on, I think splitting splitting it out and, and forcing ourselves to split it out into, into multiple pillars um, into multiple stages um, is, is a way to, to get that continual, um, you know, you're continually ticking things off, continually getting progress. Because I, mean, I think a lot of the time uh, we like to see something as either complete or not. Um, and it, it could be this massive mountain that stands in front of you, um, all these little piles, um, you know, along the way. And, and, and if you force yourself to split them out into small things, um, you know, you can kind of then, um, coupled with a bit of celebration and, and achievement for every single one of those things, um, at least, as you say, get that momentum, um, which, which I think is important. And I, I think it's, I think it's a great little idea. Um, so yeah, thanks for, thanks for bringing that one up, Barton, and hopefully, uh, our listeners can, can take it on. Definitely. And I want to kind of allay some of the concerns. I know that some of you listening right now are like, I'm never going to fist bump in public. That's <laughs> never going to happen. So I just want to let you know that, that, that it doesn't have to be a fist bump. So he, he makes it yeah. very clear that your tiny celebration could be anything, right? So it could be imagining the sound of a crowd roaring for you or imagining a high five from someone you care about or just a smile on your face in the mirror or whatever it is, right? So find the tiny celebration that works for you. I'm not saying that all of you have to jump in the air and fist bump with your heart's delight, even though I recommend that. <laughs> But there are lots of ways to celebrate. So so find the tiny celebration that works for you and then apply that to all the various small wins in your life. What that does is it focuses your attention on the good. It focuses your attention on things where you get it right. We are so good at spotting the one thing we did wrong in the, in the space of like a whole day, right? So we, we, we don't celebrate the, the 30 things we did right. We focus on the one thing we did wrong. We feel horrible about it. And we tell ourselves a story that we, that we, are, we aren't worthy and we are, we are failures and losers and all that kind of stuff. And so the more we can focus on those small things we do right and that as many celebrations, those tiny yep. celebrations, it makes for a better life. 
You're completely right. I mean, right at the beginning of this episode, Barry and I had a little quick catch up with each other offline. And uh, I mean, the first thing that I mentioned was how I messed up one song that I did at open mic night last night. Now I did, I did four and the three others were, were pretty good. Um, but you know, like you said, I, I kind of just focused on the one that was a little bit, you know, not perfect. Um, and you know, if instead I walked away from that evening saying, wow, I actually smashed that. Didn't think I would be able to do that one so well. Um, you know, crowd really enjoyed that one. People were singing along to that track. That That is the, this kind of change, and, and I think the change that we need to uh, start doing. So I certainly know at the end of this episode, Barry's going to leap out of his chair and hopefully not punch the camera out uh, in, <laughs> into the street. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly little wins uh, along the way. Let's move on to our next segment. What's on your mind? So we've now got to what's on your mind uh, where a listener sends us a question to chat about, have a little bit of banter between the two of us. Um, And so, yeah, we kind of just want to encourage people to send through questions every week, no matter what it is that you're thinking about, um, do bring it up. And uh, the Anchor app is the place to do that if you want to send us a voice note. Um, So if you haven't heard of Anchor, it's the publishing platform that we use for our podcast um, so you can actually you don't even have to download the app you could go to the website and just search across the pond at Barry and Chad um, hit a little voice note in there and that'll come straight through to us so the question this week is from Jean-Marc and uh, this is basically the question is what are your thoughts on the rise of the vegan and keto diets and do you potentially think that an everything in moderation diet might be a better call Barry what are your thoughts so this is a difficult one. I think that um, we're always wary of diet fads, right? So we've seen hundreds of diets go, go, go back and forth over our, over our lifetime, and things always seem to be changing. Nutritional science seems to be so fickle. It seems to change every single year. One year, but is good for you. One year, but is bad for you. One year is, is this, one year is that, right? Yeah. And so I think that 2019 was definitely the year of keto. I think keto really had a huge like, layer of growth. And for those who don't know, keto is very, very high fat and low carb diets, right? And it kind of went against a lot of the, the fight against saturated fat from the past um, where we used to stay away from saturated fats because they thought it would cause heart disease. It's, it was a huge 180 on that. Um, and keto yep. really showed a lot of a lot of promise for some people. It's a very, very difficult diet to do because for the first, I think, two weeks or so, you feel what they call the keto flu, which is basically yep. you feel this horrible and so you break into ketosis and then you finally start feeling better. So it's a very difficult diet to, to get into, but once you get there, apparently it's, it's quite good. I haven't tried it myself, um, but apparently it's quite good. And then the vegan diet is obviously, there's a lot of reasons people come to it. Some, some of them are ethical, some of them are environmental, some of them are health-wise. And yeah. it's how we also had a huge growth over the last kind of couple of years. And so for someone like me, Chad, my personality is like all or nothing. So I struggle with moderation. I, I, I really, I, what I try and do myself is try and set rules for myself that are kind of all or nothing rules. Because otherwise, I really struggle to say, cool, I'm just going to have two cookies. I'm just going to have two and then I'm going to put the bag away because <laughs> that doesn't work for me. So either I'm having the whole bag <laughs> or I'm having nothing. Um, and so I think it depends on your personality. I think that if you are able to do moderation, I think that's probably the best bet to go. Um, yeah. But for some of these people, like abstinence and kind of a very strict diet is necessary to make that behavioral change possible. What do you think, Chad? I think it's an interesting one. Like you said, I think we, we've certainly seen the, the rise of veganism and uh, you know ketosis uh, in the past year. Um, I've certainly spoken to a couple of friends who have done the keto diet. And uh, I mean, like you said, not easy, um, especially if I, if I kind of listen to the full list of things that people have eaten um, during the day. And conventional wisdom would, would say, 
that is a terrible day of eating. Yet at the end of the week, um, you know, these people kind of get on the scale and end up losing loads of weight. Um, but I suppose the, the question for me always is, is this sustainable? Um, you know, of course, you're going to lose this weight right at the outset. But I mean, is this going to be something you're going to carry out in the rest of your life? Um, and if we look at something like uh, the keto diet, um, there has been you know, sort of medical research saying that it, it, it increases your mortality risk. Um, and so although you might be able to, you know, shed off some weight in, in some quick time by converting your body over to burning fat stores for energy as opposed to relying on carbs, um, I think there certainly is a question about health and sustainability. Um, and, and I actually wonder whether it should be something that's that's being encouraged, especially while whilst it's so new um, and, you know, as this research is still happening. Um, in terms of veganism, I mean, I suppose the, the question, and I've seen, you know, a couple of articles with this as well, is are people who are switching, switching um, because they generally believe in the reasons why they want to switch or is it has become a bit of a cultural type things where it just has kind of generated this mass effect of people following this movement um, because, you know, if you're not, then you're not part of the end crowd. Really an interesting one. Um, I, I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Um, but in terms of me and, and my sort of uh, diet, I, I definitely follow the everything in moderation approach. Um, sometimes a little too heavy on meat. Um, need to cut back on that one a little bit more. Um, but yeah, an interesting one. I want to come back to that meat comment, Chad. I want to ask you a question. Have you heard about the ruckus about the carnivore diet over the last few weeks? I haven't, Barry. Uh, tell me about this carnivore diet. Yeah, so this is a this is a crazy one that I've been reading in the last kind of few weeks. Um, the, the very popular podcaster and comedian Joe Rogan, who has a huge amount of following online, uh, recently has tried this experiment where for a month he ate only meat. So a carnivore diet where the only wow. thing he ate was meat. No vegetables, no carbs, no nothing else. Um, and he has reported amazing health benefits. He's been chatting about how he feels healthier than ever, how his energy is kind of stable throughout the day, his skin looks wow. better, he's, he's stronger in the gym, etc. And so it's it's... It's, it's very hard to understand where any of this comes from, right? So without the research backing, like you say about ketosis, Definitely. like all this research is so, so new and there hasn't been enough long-term studies done on these diets. It's so hard to know what is good and what is bad. And because everyone's body is different and their metabolism is different, you get these yeah. crazy extremes where some people say veganism is the future. Now you get some people saying, oh, I'm going to try this carnivore diet, which is going against all of like the dietary requirement or dietary um, suggestions of the past. Um, I think that there's so much misinformation. There's so much of, of diets where there isn't long-term research to show what is the actual mortality risk. Um, if you're doing a keto diet, you might be looking at a, a scientific paper, but the, the scientists might only be doing two years of research, right? Where you actually yep. need a 40-year research um, idea to get a sense what it's going to do over a long-term basis. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, like you say, the, the the emotional aspect is quite important. So like you said about the veganism, sometimes it comes a bit cultural and comes a bit tribal because you want to fit in with a certain group. Um, sure. I think that f eating is so emotional. It's such an emotional part of our being and we can't avoid it. It's one of those things where you can't just say, okay, I'm never drinking again. It's like, you know, with food, you can't do that because yeah. you, you have to eat to, to stay alive. And so that okay. emotional aspect causes us to do all weird and wonderful things. And so I think the biggest thing for me is that just listen to your body. So, by all means, go and try all these diets. Like, Go and experiment. Go and figure out what works for you. But know that everyone's body is different and everyone reacts to yeah. foods in a different way. And so it's important to listen to your body and understand what certain foods are doing to your energy levels and to your moods and then to eat in the best way possible for your unique situation. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that's great advice. And I think some sub threads out of that um, is also the alternatives that we now have in terms of, you know, alternatives to gluten and alternatives to dairy, um, which for a long time, there haven't been many alternatives. And because this is becoming so mainstream, uh, you now go to your local grocer and there are so many options. Um, I've actually kind of made the, the switch off dairy, which I never thought I ever would have done. I'm not doing it for any, any moral reasons or anything like that. Um, but it is, like you said, just, um, just in terms of how it reacts in the body. I mean, I certainly have felt less bloating um, and I actually just like the taste of oat milk more than dairy. Um, but certainly interesting that we now have all these options. Definitely. And it's, it's one of the things that we see as the world gets better at, at effective alternatives to various things, whether it comes to alternatives to meat or alternatives to dairy or alternatives to various different things and yeah. catering for a wide range of diets. So like you said, if you go into these premium supermarkets, everything under the sun from anywhere in the world, you can get your hands on it. And so um, it's important to understand what is best for you and then to buy and eat accordingly. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to an end of a, another loaded episode, Barry. Um, I certainly learned a lot about the uh, the big hole in, in Kimberley and, uh, you know, certainly had a, had a good time this week. Yeah, it was good fun. It was good fun. And uh, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking outside and it's raining and it's pouring <laughs> and there's thunder outside here. But there's, oh, there's warmth inside my heart because of this podcast. And so I'm really enjoying it. And so thanks for listening for everyone who's listening. We really appreciate you. Absolutely. Well, as always, please do tune in to our next episode. And you just listened to episode 17 of Across the Pond. Oh, 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 oh.